Hi there. Thank you for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast. This is a show where two old friends get together and re-engage with an old cartoon called Generation 1 Transformers. We watch it in story order and reflect on how we engaged with it as children and how we experience it today as adults. My name is Jersey Drozd. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist, and the other host is named... Hoover, and I want four cities for doing this podcast. (laughs) He just eats cities like Cookie Monster. That's why he said it that way. (laughs) Here's Santa Fe. Nom, 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 nom. Here's Lincoln. Nom, nom, nom. Oh my gosh, and that is a reference to this week's episode, episode 35, Megatron's Master Plan, part one. By whom, Hoover? Who? Who wrote this? Donald F. Glute, and we have heard Yay. this name numerous times before. He wrote Divide and Conquer. He wrote SOS Dinobots. He wrote War of the Dinobots. He wrote Heavy Metal War. He wrote Autobot Spike. He wow. wrote the Autobot Run, and he wrote mm. Dinobot Island 1 and 2. Mm. At this point, he's got to be the most prolific Transformers animation writer. Wow. So if folks want to hit pause right now and go watch it, because you should, and that way you can like think about what you would you know, make note of when examining the show in great detail and come back and listen to how we, what we think about it, uh, where would they look, Hoover? Well, if you go on Tubi, it's going to be in Season 2, Episode 15. Tubi.tv, T-U-B-I, because it's an internet name. It always has to be spelled in a weird way. T-U-B-I. Season 2, Episode 15. All right, so here comes the IMDb logline. The Decepticons convince the humans that the Autobots are the true enemies with the help of a greedy candidate for mayor named Sean Berger. Oh, man. Let me back away and do like a 10,000-foot examination of this episode before we start. So first of all, this episode is a lot about media, and it feels like unusually timely because mm-hmm. it's all about how like media can be used to convince people of all sorts of things, and public opinion can turn on a dime. Yep. <laughs> it's also about how if you are not kind of heart, you can tell yourself all sorts of stories to explain away, to rationalize doing very, very bad things, as well as see with this mayoral candidate. And it just dawned on me as I read that, that that's right, he's running for mayor in the story, but this guy is profoundly wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> and so you'd think he's like running for governor or running for Senate. No, he's running for mayor. I mean, I guess that's that's an important job. Don't get me wrong. But it's just like with somebody with this guy's kind of wealth, it's like, boy, shouldn't you be aiming a little bit higher? But maybe that's where our heads were in the 80s where we didn't think that just anybody could <laughs> sign up for public office if they had enough money. Exactly. This was pre-Ross Perot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's true. It was. <laughs> Remember how shocking that felt? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you could look him up on the internet, everybody. R-O-S-S-P-E-R-O-T. Now, just for the record, uh, I don't have any spin doctors. I don't have any speech writers. Probably shows. <laughs> I make those charts you see on television even. That show. Anyway, how does this one begin, Hoover? 
Well, we open on the grand opening of a solar energy facility, and it's being announced by the newly elected mayor of Central City, who is not Berger. He's the guy that Berger lost the race to. And it's been donated to the city by the candidate who just lost the mayoral race, Sean Berger. And we cut to the office of Berger, a portly man in a brown suit with gray hair, but Jersey likes to call it purple. It's kind of a it's weird grayish purple color it's worth noting it's worth noting just because it's like we talked about this in a recent episode where it's like in this cartoon kind of unreality you can do things like have people with like bright blue hair and we as children didn't think anything of it and here's this guy and and the reason i point to it being purple too is like this is part of like what i teach in my comics classes is look at his hair he's got sort of like the pointy pointy headed boss's hairstyle from like the Mm -hmm. dilbert comics but it's purple too Pointy things usually equal dangerous and dynamic characters. That's that's a telegraphing move to like say like you look at Starscream, dude's covered in points. And purple is often the color of mystery and strange things. And we talk about like characters like Skywarp where he's all black and white and purple and everything about him just screams dynamism. You know, so when I looked at it, I saw purple personally. And I think that this there's a lot of nice little subtle things they did in this story to telegraph ideas. Now, we also have Burger's voice, which we'll talk about, but just in, on initial look, we go, okay, this, this fella is not Mr. Rogers. <laughs> well, he's watching the event on a big screen as two armed guards just stand in the room. And as we cut back, the mayor is about to declare the facility open when he looks up and sees jets in the sky. Jets he recognizes as Decepticons. And we see Starscream in the new trio, Ramjet, Dirge, and Thrust. Back in his office, Berger smiles and says he's glad they've taken the bait. Seems like he may have some ulterior motives in mind for donating this building. And Berger is voiced by Ed Gilbert, who voices Thrust, not to mention General Hawk from G.I. Joe. So he sounds like Hawk if he were a conniving corporate bigwig instead of a real American hero. (laughs) Berger picks up the gold phone on his desk and tells his tank crews to prepare for combat. Oh, he's definitely got some ulterior motives. And so the Seekers swoop down to the building as Thrust exclaims, Let's teach them the meaning of fear! But Starscream admonishes him, saying, Ignore the humans, fill the energon cubes. So, about Berger's voice, I did not realize that General Hawk and Thrust were the same actor until we started doing the show. And he does a pretty good job at, like, shifting gears. Like, when you hear mm-hmm. Thrust's voice, he sounds very, oh, what would, you, what would you call that performance? It's kind of in the same realm as Skywarp. He sounds like he'd be friends with Skywarp, right? Like, they're both punks who like to knock things over. Mm-hmm. Let's go out and, like, like, hit some mailboxes with baseball bats kind of kids. When he does thrust, it feels like he's intentionally, like, bringing his voice up to a different register. When he mm-hmm. does burger, it feels like he's just sort of in the same register, but maybe lower and different delivery than, say, his normal voice. Yeah, when he does General Hawk, he sounds absolutely wholesome. Mm-hmm. So, way to go, Ed Gilbert. Holy cow. And we see as the Seekers fill up the Energon Cubes that there's been another development in their production. No longer must they be made by Soundwave's chest and just sort of shoot out empty. The Seekers Mm -hmm. can now make them with their hands. It's funny how this has really evolved over time with these subtle changes. I guess they just wanted things to be easier and not have to have Soundwave all the time. 
Yeah, they, they set themselves up with a little bit of a design problem by making Soundwave the generator of the cubes. Like, it, it looks mm-hmm. cool when he does it in the first episodes. It just adds to, like, the weird mystery surrounding this character. But from a storytelling st- standpoint, now suddenly you're faced with, I got to have Soundwave in every episode now? Right. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's like, and then here comes Hasbro going like, hey, I thought you were going to talk about our new toys. You know, stop talking about our old toys so much. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, well... Guess what? Soundwave like open sourced the technology, <laughs> so now they can all just like pop them out of their hands. Boop! And then yes, they and now they no longer have to use the null ray to like make the things the machines slow down. They just hold up the cubes to whatever has energy, and it just sucks <laughs> the stuff into it. So, so the four seekers go to fill their cubes, and nothing happens. There's no energy here. It's a trap. Instead. Out of the garage doors of the building come huge tanks which fire on the Seekers, destroying their empty Energon cubes. And the mayor exclaims that Berger's taken the law into his own hands again as he takes the microphone from a reporter and says, Get me the Autobots! <laughs> yeah, I love this. I love that he like, just goes to a reporter, grabs the microphone, like, well, where does that microphone go? It's like, <laughs> goes to a control room. Well, I guess, I guess they have phones in there, but it was just, it's a funny image, how he like just swipes it out of her hand, and... I don't know. I, I, it, when I was a kid, I remember thinking that this was weird too. And I was like, well, maybe he's like going to like the, the speakers when he was doing the speech earlier. And so like, he's like, mm-hmm. somebody get me the Autobots. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I guess it, it, that's faster than having him like turn to a subordinate and then have to explain their relationship when he says that, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> the tanks are firing on the Seekers, but they're not doing a lick of damage. Once they're shot at, however, the tanks explode, though thankfully the drivers have just enough time to escape, of course. Yeah. Everybody break out a stopwatch. It's about four seconds. <laughs> they shoot the tank, and then it cuts to the pilot. He's like, uh-oh, we better get out of here. <laughs> and then they climb out, and they're like 15 feet away, and then the tank explodes. So it's like these new Seekers have like sort of like time-released explosive technology. <laughs> well, then who shows up but the Autobots, led by Optimus Prime, and we see Berger in his office see that they are interference. Prime tells the Autobots to transform, and who all came with him? We have Ironhide, Warpath, Smokescreen, Bumblebee, Trax, and Spike. So if I can jump in a little bit about Berger's response to the Autobots showing up, and he's like, he's like, you know, how dare they interfere? And this is another one of those quiet little things that I feel like the show does a good job of telegraphing and suggesting that Berger's motives... Like, we had the mayor say, like, oh, he's taking the law into his own hands again, but he is trying to stop the Decepticon. So, like, you could read that as, like, well, he's just a vigilante, which isn't quite the same thing as a villain. Mm -hmm. But when he's like, the Autobots, why are they interfering in my thing? This also goes to show what an an egotist this character is, that he thinks that he's thought this thing through so carefully that he has overlooked the fact that when the Decepticons show up, the Autobots usually show up because Mm -hmm. that's their job, is to stop the Decepticon. So you didn't think of that? Like, how how arrogant are you, Mr. <laughs> Berger? Again, I, I just, I think that as I, as I was watching, I noticed that I was like, that's an interesting line that I don't think hit me as a child. We've made the observation that some of the early, I, what you call season 1.5 episodes really feel like they're aimed at a much younger audience. This is heading back into where it was in season one, I feel like. It's a little bit more... I don't want to say sophisticated. Well, it is. Mm-hmm. It's more sophisticated than it has been so far in season two. So shining a light on that, just to say, everybody, hey, look at look at the, the careful things they're doing with the writing of this, this series. So Prime tells the Autobots to transform, but Trax has another idea. Remember, he's the flying Corvette. 
Again, remember why he's a flying Corvette? I don't know! <laughs> but as the three new seekers take off, Trax doesn't want to leave his stunning auto mode. Hold the last order, Prime! I want to throw some dark on the subject! Now, if you remember from Dinobot Island Part 2, Trax's gun sort of shoots darkness. <laughs> so when That's he shoots an adversary, the darkness surrounds them and they can't see. And he does exactly this to Dirge. Oh, the right one to do it to, too, right? <laughs> Ramjet, true to his name, circles back and rams Trax in the air, causing him to transform and crash to the ground. Ironhide gets Warpath and Smokescreen to concentrate fire on Starscream before he manages to take off. Their shots manage to pin him down, causing Starscream to whine. Trust! Help me! Taste death, Autobots! Whoa! We're getting some strong language in this episode. <laughs> We've talked about this before, but like this is something that... When we were children, at least I, I, I can't remember how you reacted to this as a child, Hoover, but when I was a kid, I always knew that destroy meant kill. Mm -hmm. But you don't say it. Just like you don't say swears, you say, you know, dang, you know, because the teacher's <laughs> going to get mad if you, if you say the other word that you're thinking of. And so whenever I heard die or death in these cartoons, I was always like, <gasps> oh, oh. <laughs> and he said, taste death, Autobots. Holy moly. A again, it's a little thing, but it makes it feel slightly a little bit older, so the 12-year-old me is like, it's okay that I'm watching this. <laughs> well, Thrust fires some missiles at the Autobots, but Smokescreen evades them and manages to hit Thrust with his gun, the Yoda Blaster. <laughs> now, that's just what we jokingly called it two episodes ago, because it scrambles circuits, and last time it caused the Seeker sentences to be all jumbled up. It doesn't do that this time, but it does scramble Thrust's guidance systems. So since the whole plan's gone sideways, Starscream calls for a retreat, and soon the four Decepticons are just specks in the sky. Bumblebee, who didn't really help with anything, dusts off his hands and says, Well, looks like uh, we showed them, Spike. Now, now, he <laughs> is telegraphing that he didn't have anything to do during right. this battle, so there yeah. you go. Okay, it's not, it's not a slag on Bumblebee. No, it's <laughs> okay. just an explanation of why he's saying this. Okay, we're good. <laughs> so the mayor agrees. The Autobots showed them what heroes are, and the crowd gathered cheer for them. Ironhide and Trax have slightly different takes on this. <laughs> Relax, folks. It's all in the day's work. I enjoy the adulation, but the noise is most irritating. The mayor tells Optimus he wants to officially honor the Autobots at City Hall, and Prime leans down to shake the mayor's hand. Yeah, part's cute. Watching the whole thing on TV, Burger is not pleased. If not for the Autobots' arrival, he would have been the hero for his tanker troops defeating the Decepticons. Not that they did a good job. Burger dismisses his armed guards from the room, saying he wants to be alone. Two things here. One, like as an observation, he's got a gigantic TV in his office. But like as I looked at it, I was like, this is only gigantic by 80 standards. Like this feels like this is like what's in a lot of like rumpus rooms now, right? Like yeah. in, like the, the basement that's been redone to like a playroom. Like this is like a, maybe a 55 to 60 inch TV, right? Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, again, this is a very subtle thing. Subtle in the sense that they don't draw a lot of attention to it. You mentioned that he had armed guards in the office. 
and it's not just that they're packing pistols. They have right. machine guns. <laughs> yeah. They have machine guns, and they have like almost military-looking uniforms, and they salute him as they leave, right? And so, like, it's a it's a it's a tiny thing, but it's pointing to the fact that this character has ambitions of being his own little tyrant, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say, like, "I want to rule the universe." He, they're not coming out and saying it, but they're giving you little pieces of visual and audio information so that you can put the picture together in your head as a twelve-year-old watching this. That, like, you see the mayor. The mayor just looks like business dude. Berger is surrounding himself with tanks, with soldiers. If even in his office there are two people with machine guns, why would you have people with machine guns in your office, right? Yeah. Unless you have some more nastier ambitions. Uh, nastier, maybe that's not the right word. Ambitions involving force and possibly cruelty, right? So he's more than just a business person, more than just a political candidate, or at least he sees himself as that. And I love that they just drop it in like that. So like the, you get a shot, the two guards, as they salute him as they leave the room. So he's like, I want to be alone. And now what does he do as he's pacing the office? Yeah, he starts walking around, planning his next move, and suddenly he takes note of a cassette tape on his desk. He picks it up. Is this the latest offering from Duran Duran? No, as he gives it a look, it transforms into a condor because it's laser beak. Oh, he's back from vacation. (laughs) Well, he was back last week just in time to get drunk. Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. We've been going on this for so long with the Laser Beak being employee of the month. I've gotten lost in that narrative. Okay, so yes. So now he's back to work. A burger calls out for the guards he just dismissed, but Laser Beak picks him up by the shoulders, uses his eye lasers to shatter the window, and he flies out holding him. And then we get the more that meets the eye transition, where it goes from Decepticon symbol to Decepticon symbol. And when Laser Beak shoots out the window, it's a cool looking shot, by the way, we see it's bright blue sky. And then the transition happens, and we see Laserbeak flying with Sean Berger, and the sky is now yellow, indicating sunset. They didn't say, hours later, dot, dot, dot. They're just <laughs> showing you. They're just showing you, and it's not that crucial. But what happens next, I feel like they chose it also to indicate tone. It's to show that, first of all, Laserbeak's been flying for a long time. It's probably been at least an hour since he's picked up Sean Berger. But also, it's like that yellow and orangish sky feels kind of a little bit menacing, because what happens next? Well, Laserbeak flies across the city and he gets to the top of a cliff where he drops Burger onto the ground unceremoniously. And as Burger shakes his head and looks up, he is greeted by someone unexpected. Greetings, Mr. Burger. I trust your flight wasn't too unpleasant. Perhaps you recognize me. I am Megatron, leader of the Decepticons. Now, as we hear that dialogue, the shot changes to Megatron's knees, and then it pans up, and we're looking at Megatron from Sean Berger's perspective. And there's that red, reddish-orange sky behind him when they do that. And this scene is, this whole scene is really worth watching because you get like this wonderful augmentation of Frank Walker's performance because he's he's do, he's trying to sound like really friendly, like, "Hey, I, know, I hope you I hope you had a pleasant flight. Hope it was good. Hi, I'm Megatron. You might have heard of me." <laughs> but all the visuals are like scary right? It's great. This is a really great scene. And Megatron is flanked by Soundwave and Dirge. Instantly, Burger goes on about how he's an important man, and if he's hurt, Megatron will suffer for it. But Megatron doesn't want to play Squish the Flesh Creature today. 
He tells Burger, Hurt you, Mr. Burger? I want to help you. It pains me to see a man of your obvious brilliance deceived by Autobot propaganda. Now, I'm sure you, you were noting Megatron's body language during this little speech. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. He's doing like this elaborate overacting with his body. And so you have Frank Welker's kind of subtle performance with like, he's like putting his wrist to his forehead, like, oh, I'm so sad for you. <laughs> it's really great. And like, it just, it, it blends this kind of menace with kind of like a comical feeling. And also, I mean, maybe this is me reading too closely into Hoover, but this is what we do on the Four Million Years Later podcast is it's showing that like, this is how much contempt he has for Sean Berger. He's like, okay, you're so dumb. You humans are so stupid that I got to go. I have to really sell how much it grieves me. How much does it grieve me? This much. I'm like Lady of Shalott in the boat with my wrist on my head going, no, I'm, I'm swooning. I'm swooning because I feel so bad for you. Do you get it? Do you get it, you dumb human? <laughs> but he doesn't get it. Megatron's been watching Star Trek and learning from William Shatner. He's like, oh, <laughs> if I just overact. Well, also, this is this is like another interesting thing about this episode and where it falls in the, the timeline you constructed is this is after a prime problem. And in prime problem, it was like, okay, what do people respect? They respect power and authority and force. And now he's learned from that. It's like, oh, that didn't work. Oh, I have to pretend to be compassionate. Oh, okay, okay, well, watch me. Hey, guys, watch, watch this. I'm going to be compassionate. Oh, <laughs> he swoons back. <laughs> I saw it on Star Trek. There's that guy who was always wearing the, the thing on his head. Yeah, I, I, he does it like this. <laughs> if it would have been a modern Transformers cartoon, like afterwards, we would have seen the Seekers all clap. And Megatron would be like, stop it. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> But yeah, but Burger, like, he doesn't buy it right away, right? Oh, he's confused, but intrigued. And so Megatron continues. You see, you are so brainwashed by it that you don't even suspect that they are evil and we are good. Oh, the power of public relations. Well, now Burger thinks he's being conned, and he asks if he's supposed to just believe this. And Megatron says, not yet. But he says, if they show him proof... Will he use his power and influence to help them? Burger wants to know what's in it for him. Megatron says the whole city will be his. But Burger wants proof. And Megatron says he'll get it. He orders Dirge to take him home. And Megatron gently picks him up off the ground. Burger exclaims, My price is two cities. There is no limit to what you can have if you join us. And Megatron leans down and lets Burger climb into Dirge's cockpit. Dirge takes off with Burger and flies away, leaving Megatron to muse. The pompous, gullible fool. <laughs> he thinks he will be king, but he will never be more than a pawn. Now that's some great acting. The tone of bemusement, delight, and contempt in Megatron's voice. Another reason I'm grateful for this project is that it's making me realize I, I get why you like Megatron so much. You know, it's like we, we did like a, a Decepticons episode not long ago. And I was like, yeah, he's fine. I, right. he's, he's okay. But he's actually pretty darn great. I mean, this is this scene was like really good Megatron. It's like some A plus chef's kiss Megatron. Really nice. <laughs> so we cut to some time later and we see Berger in a helicopter. He orders the pilot to hover over this oil field. 
and he instructs two men in the back of the helicopter to roll cameras. And suddenly we see the Autobots below. Prime, Sunstreaker, Ironhide, and Wheeljack. The workers aren't here yet. That gives us plenty of time to drain this oil field dry. <laughs> oh. Yeah. With that, Prime uses the self-filling Energon cubes to suck oil from the derrick and into the cube, converting it to Energon. Those little straws that sucked in the energy that we saw on Dinobot Island are here again. So I guess Megatron was right. The Autobots are bad. We're left to ponder this as we head to commercial. I like that they didn't tip their hand yet. I like that they left it so that maybe, just maybe, you know, and like so we can... Uh, again, it's like they're not showing up and putting Burger in front of us saying, like, look at this evil creep. They're very subtly saying, like, okay, well, he's not exactly a great guy, but is he evil? Well, he did ask for two cities, but he's like, he wants proof that Megatron is evil, right? He, he like, if he was truly wicked, like Dr. Archiville was, he would have been like, yeah, I'll work with you and I can change your image and everything, but yeah, I, I want power too. I don't care if you're good or bad. He still at least has the internal narrative that he needs proof that Megatron's a good guy, right? Yeah. So there's an awful lot of ambiguity in this episode for a kid's show. And once again, I think that this is all pointing to this one was definitely aimed at 11-year-olds and up. So now that I am thoroughly confused and I don't know who to vote for, Autobots or Decepticon, how can I distract myself from my anxiety with consumerism? (laughs) (laughs) Well, seeing as this is Megatron's master plan, how about this commercial for Mastermind, a strategy game that I had zero interest in but got for my birthday when I should have been getting Transformers. Each player will try to break his opponent's secret code by a masterstroke of cunning and logic. You didn't like this game? I didn't even pay it enough attention to figure it out or anything. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I love this game. Something I don't want. It's one of my favorite board games because it is. It's it's a logic game. You have to like crack the code. Somebody hides a code from you with four colors, and you have to, and they have to tell you the truth. So you make guesses, and they have to say, okay, well, you got two of the colors right, but they're not in the right spot, and then you have to deduce, okay, which ones did I do? Ah, I, I, this is like probably one of my top three board games of all time. <laughs> when I wanted to deduce in a board game, I just played Battleship. <laughs> That's also a good one. <laughs> but I guess Mastermind, the metaphor wasn't as direct as it was with Battleship, right? Like, the like, what am I doing? Am I playing cribbage? What is this? It's like a brown plastic board that you put the colored pegs into. All right. Or how about this commercial for Sega Master System that hundreds of disappointed kids opened up on Christmas <laughs> when they asked Santa for a Nintendo? <laughs> oh, well, we know where Hoover fell in the console wars. <laughs> I didn't have a Sega Master System, and I was blissfully unaware that there was even like a Coke versus Pepsi thing about those. I didn't learn that until very recently, like in the last 10 years, that like there are people who are arguing over which one was better. I'm like, they're just it's video games. Don't you like video <laughs> games? Or how about this commercial for the Talking Viewmaster? See and hear A-Team and Muppets on cartridges each sold separately. The Talking Viewmaster Viewer with earphone, volume control, and three Mickey Mouse cartridges. How did you find this? I have no memory of this toy. <laughs> uh, I was a big fan of the regular Viewmaster, but I never had this talking version, and it doesn't look like I was missing out on anything by watching the commercial. 
<laughs> do you like Viewmaster? Oh yeah. Would you like it to be really, really big? Um, and would you like it to have like this weird disc on the cartridge so we put it in? You could hear like one line from a cartoon you watched. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you kids today, you have no idea what we had to put up with back then. The limits of technology. And I like that they're like, well, we need somebody to really make this idea land. Let's get a really good-looking blonde guy with the whitest teeth you've ever seen who will talk with his teeth the entire time as he explains this product to you. <laughs> okay, I'm still feeling anxious, and i got to find out if Optimus really is a jerk, because that laugh scared me. <laughs> well, as we return, we see Sunstreaker, Ironhide, and Prime failing energon cues with oil, and Prime muses... Another raid to blame on the Decepticons. (laughs) Man, I guess the Autobots really are evil. How about that maniacal cackle that Peter Cullen delivers? I know. Can that guy laugh evil or what? You wouldn't think so. And I think it's all the more jarring because at this point we're in full-on Optimus Dad, you know? Mm -hmm. And to hear that, I don't know, man. It's, it's, It's upsetting. Well, up in Berger's helicopter, he's surprised that Megatron was correct. The Autobots are bad after all, and he has everyone keep filming. Down below, Ironhide notices the copter. We got past Optimus. Want me to swat him? No, let me. And Prime begins firing on the copter, but as luck would have it, who shows up but the heroic Decepticons? And with Megatron are Starscream, Dirge, Ramjet, and Thrust. They begin firing on the evil Autobots below as Berger's men in the helicopter continue their filming. You won't tarnish our reputation again, Prime! Today, Earth learns the truth! And slowly, the heroic Decepticons overwhelm the evil Autobots and send them retreating. Except for Optimus, who's lying on the ground, yielding to the heroic Megatron. Megatron radios Berger and asks if he believes him now, and Berger does, and he has it all on video. And as the evil Autobots retreat, Wheeljack shoots the camera off of the front of Berger's helicopter. And this catches Dirge's attention. Hey guys, look, Berger dropped one of his video cameras. Let's make some home movies. But Megatron stops him, saying they must return it to Berger since it has valuable evidence. Now, Jersey, what kind of home movies do you think Dirge makes in his spare time? I don't know, Hoover. What kind of home movies does Dirge make in his spare time? (laughs) What it made me think of is in the Strong Bad emails, whenever they would show Strong Mad doing something, and he made, like, these little claymation shorts called Doug the Dino, and he would just have, like, a dinosaur stomp around and, like, smash things. So I'm thinking that all Dirge's home movies, they're just really short on plot and there's a lot of destruction. Maybe Dirge actually did those Michael Bay Transformers movies. Maybe that's <laughs> that's what their deal is. It's just a lot of Dirge going, <laughs> and then... <laughs> oh, see, I thought you were going to be like, he was going to do Strong Sad, where it's all like, it's you know, he's, he's dressed as Calibos and he's reciting poetry. Nope. <laughs> I mostly sit in my room and 
listen to music and write and talk to walls or trees and wait to be pummeled. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> he did that. The Michael Bay movies is actually executive directed by Dirge. There's no point to anything. Just blow it all up. If, if, if I could back away and talk about the scene a little bit, there's a couple things that stood out to me about it. One is like Wheeljack like shoots at the helicopter and like makes the camera fall down, which I know this is kind of a plot point, but it's like, why did he do that? Like, why would Wheeljack... Even, I guess he, I guess at this point, we still believe that Wheeljack is evil. So I guess, okay, we'll table that. But... The other thing that I think about, and I, I do remember feeling this as a child, is that this flicks the switch for the fun, imaginative story of when you see the alternate universe version of a scenario, right? Where mm-hmm. like the bad guys are good and the good guys are bad. We've seen this in Star Trek. We're talking about that again. Mm-hmm. DC Comics did this a bunch of times, right? You had the, the what was, which Earth was it? Was it Earth 3 where like the, you had Ultraman yes. and Superwoman and basically evil Superman, evil Wonder, evil Justice League versus Luthor, who was the good guy. Like that's a really, it's a fun kind of story to do. And this does that in a way that I don't think I've seen other people do where we actually didn't go to an alternate dimension where the, the, the proposition is, nope, everything you've known for the past 34 episodes is wrong. And mm-hmm. here on Earth, the good guys are bad and the bad guys are good. So, yeah, yeah. But but also, yeah, the, the line with Dirge too. Like, that's one of those ones that I remembered as a child, and it continued all the way to my adulthood. Like, I wouldn't be able to tell you any very many details about this episode, but I do remember the part where he says, Let, "Let's make some old movies." <laughs> <laughs> that's very cute, and we don't get enough of that in this series. Like, I I could use like thirty percent more of that in mm-hmm. every Transformers episode. <laughs> Especially if it comes from Decepticons. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know that's one of your one of your things. And and hey, Dirge is awful cute in his gloominess. So, <laughs> well, we cut away to Central City where they're celebrating Autobot Day. A huge crowd has amassed, including Spike, Sparkplug, and Chip, cheering on the Autobots in a parade. All the Autobots stop to transform and somehow walk up the steps to a building with really tall doors. <laughs> Inside is the mayor about to make an announcement to the fans outside. But we cut to the control room where Berger is making some lackey run his videotape instead of the mayor's live speech. Gasp! The video shows the Autobots stealing energy from the oil field. And a voiceover explains the visuals. Good people of Earth! This is Megatron speaking! for this opportunity to expose the Autobots for the base metal they really are. And everyone is shocked, but Prime declares it's an obvious fake and that no one's going to believe this. I love this line. I love it so much because what's happening next is something that really affected me as a child. And it was like really demonstrating the idea of what dignity looks like. Like try to explain dignity to an 11 year old, right? It's like, what does that even mean? It's a pretty abstract concept. But Optimus believes in people. He believes in them. He's like, no, people are too smart for this. But remember the acting job that Megatron did on Sean Berger. Megatron does not believe in people. He thinks that they're fundamentally stupid, flawed, and persuadable, right? And uh, this this episode is going to like kind of prove Megatron's case a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I think it's going to prove it a lot. but I just wanted to stop on that line and think about it for a moment because everything that Optimus does next is born out of that principle of, Hey, I believe in humans 
and I think that they're better than what Megatron thinks. Even even if at first it looks like Optimus is wrong. He stays true to his principle on this, and I think it's really great. And there's some, some tough stuff is about to happen, everybody. Well, Megatron continues his explanation with a second video. This device will convert even the noblest being to evil. Let's put it to the test. And on the video, we see Prime use this new weapon to hit Dirge, Ramjet, and Thrust flying overhead. What, what was that? I don't know, but suddenly I have the urge to steal energy and destroy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see, again, I feel like Megatron wrote this script. He was up late that night, <laughs> and he's like, he's typing away, and he's like, okay, well... I could do a scene where we actually have them speak the way they would speak to one another. And it, through their actions, it's revealed that they are suddenly very aggressive and want to destroy. Ah, the humans are too dumb. They won't pick up on it. I really have to sell it. Okay, try the line again. This time, say it very slowly so these primates will understand what you're saying. That's how much contempt Megatron has for humanity. And then Megatron unleashes the most damning evidence of all, filmed at Autobot headquarters. And when we are fully trusted, and the Decepticons vanquished, we'll claim the Earth for our own. (laughs) (laughs) Again, Megatron's like, look, dummies. (laughs) Do you get it? (laughs) Here is Optimus saying it. (laughs) <laughs> it's like all he had to do at the end is like, see, they're bad, huh? And he starts gesturing towards the video. Also, stepping back, the reason these videos are getting played is because Sean Berger owns the station that mm-hmm. is broadcasting this. He says it to the lackey. He's like, hey, if you, you want to keep your job, you're going to do this. So once again, we have somebody who is wealthy and in power and just sending this idea that he is not averse to using coercion and force to get what he wants. Again, another little little petty tyrant, but he still has this narrative to hide behind that the Autobots are actually the bad guys in the first place. How convenient for you, Sean Berger, to get to pursue a really nefarious scheme under that sort of umbrella. So, as, as Optimus laughs like a supervillain, what happens next? <laughs> well, this footage has got Ironhide really ticked off. And he must be really mad that the Autobots have been found out. But Prime states that they mustn't do anything rash. Now, Bubblebee asks the mayor if he believes those tapes, and he retorts that no, he doesn't, but he has to at least entertain the possibility. He tells the Autobots not to leave the area. Prime retorts that they'll head home to headquarters and can be reached there. As they exit the building, some of the crowd yell for the Autobots to go home. But Spike, Sparkplug, and Chip don't believe the videos. They get in Bumblebee and accompany the Autobots home as some of the crowd throws things and boo the evil Autobots. So, yeah, they walk outside of the courthouse. And Optimus, and this is this this affected me more than I thought it would. I, I remember the scene from my childhood, but like watching it as a grown-up, watching Optimus, who's been... Nothing but noble for like the past 20 episodes, right? He walks out and a tomato hits him in the side of the face and he turns and they actually make his eyes widen a little bit like, oh my gosh, like, did somebody just throw a tomato at me? You know, and not like in a disgusted, like, did you just mess with me? But more like, he's hurt. You can see the hurt in the way they drew him when that tomato hits him. And then like, so this moment is like, 
I've got some cognitive dissonance because one, it cuts down to this guy with a bag of tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why are you walking around with a bag of tomatoes? Like, I, like I'm thinking like this character's backstory is, is like, dude, I'm so glad I brought this bag of tomatoes to the courthouse today. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to have to use them. I thought I was going to have to actually make like a stew or something. But instead, I get to do what I do best, throw tomatoes at people. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, like, that, there's that bit of weirdness. But it's really affecting to watch the Autobots like, because like when Optimus gets hit, all of his troops get ticked off, rightfully so. Like Sunstreaker's like, you ingrates, you know? How could you? And Optimus is like, nope, don't take any action. Just keep your dignity. Let's roll out. And they all transform. And the crowd just turns on them. Everybody's got tomatoes and trash, and they're just pelting them with it. Mm-hmm. And then Spike and Sparkle and Chip get in Bumblebee, and you see stuff hitting Bumblebee. You see tomatoes splattering on Bumblebee's door. And it's like, this was really hard for me to watch over. Because <laughs> like, like we got Chip and Spike and Sparkplug being so brave when the whole world is turning on these guys and then the Autobots just taking this abuse. And I remember, I, I, again, I wouldn't have had the words as a child to say this, but like, we're watching grace happen. We're watching them respond to the whole world condemning them with dignity and quiet grace as they calmly walk away and they don't retaliate i know that that had effect an effect on me as a child I, I didn't know what it was but i knew that like what i was watching was something important so hats off to mr glute man this is a great one. Well, once they got back to the ark do you think optimus had a lot of weird questions about the significance of tomatoes and <laughs> what they really mean <laughs> it's like i get that they're angry but why the tomatoes i thought you ate those things <laughs> we don't throw energy out at each other when we're mad <laughs> <laughs> is 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 your energy sources so abundant that you just throw it at each other <laughs> and then spike's like don't tell them about food fights <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah it's it i i really advise people to like watch the scene when that first tomato hits prime like if if you can't see the herd on there man it's 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 tough well back at the arc sunstreaker is angry i knew the humans would turn on us someday they're such undependable creatures, inferior life forms. Uh, I'm not so sure, Sunstreaker. Some of my best friends are humans. Thanks, Bumblebee. And Bumblebee's then like, oh, I meant Carly. <laughs> no, no, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> You're just doing this to push my buttons, though. Because <laughs> that's also a scene that, like, as a child, remember, everybody, I've told the story a bunch of times. In fifth grade, this was almost my daily daydream was like sitting in Bumblebee and talking with him about what's going on at school. And so when I hear him say, you know, so my best friends are humans, I'm like, hopefully he'd say that to me. (laughs) (laughs) I pray every night. Come on, big magical dude in the sky. Give me my wish. (laughs) And Bumblebee drive up my driveway. So let's go. (laughs) Well, Prime is trying to think of a way to expose this so-called hoax, but then Teletran 1 sounds the alarm that security's been breached. A visual shows them that a plethora of Burger's tanks have shown up, and Burger's demanding that the Autobots surrender. And the evil Autobots emerge from the Ark, and Ironhide and Cliffjumper want to attack, but Prime insists that they not stoop to their level. Prime declares that they won't surrender to him, only a legitimate law enforcer. And then from Berger's helicopter, the voice of the mayor reveals that he's here as well, as he declares that every Autobot is under arrest. And with this shock, we head to our second commercial break. 
Wow. So it really still they're 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 playing it that the Autobots are bad. Are they really bad? That's the question. That's the question that they leave you on as they try to sell you things. My <laughs> gosh, this is this is like almost too much. This is really like psychologically just, just too much <laughs> of a weight to carry. But wait, what's this? The TV's making noises telling me to spend my parents' money again. <laughs> well, speaking of arrests, here's this commercial for Keystone Capers for Atari 2600, where you get to be a policeman chasing down crooks. Give a red my name and all the papers and how I solved the Keystone Caper. Keystone Kelly is my name. Catching crooks is my game. Yes, ethnic stereotypes always help sell products. <laughs> 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 you know, it's like it's like I I realized that like okay, it was only like forty years since that stereotype like first took hold to the eighties, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like man, does that feel out of place when I listen to that now? <laughs> oh my goodness! So, do you think the Autobots are going to try to outrun the police? You know, the Duke boys always did in the Dukes of Hazard racing set. You'll line up the road in the General V in swift pursuit. You can guarantee our Roscoe and Boss Hog like the train that to get you. You know they'll toss you in jail. You zig and you zag. Spin out with ease, but Roscoe's got Luke and Poe in a tight squeeze. But coming up again is that great big leap. You make it good, but Roscoe winds up in a great big heat. Yahoo! Is it me or is that Southern gentleman rapping to that country music? <laughs> well, maybe. I'm sure that there's been examples of that before this, though. <laughs> but I know one policeman the Autobots would never want to go up against is Marshal Bravestar. I hadn't looked at 3030 in a long time, and I, did, I didn't realize that it was just the horse that you just, like, stand him up like a person. <laughs> I thought he transformed more than that. <laughs> Like, look, it's a horse. Now it's a guy. Uh, is it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we return from commercial, the Autobots are being told that they're under arrest, but Ironhide wants to fight. Optimus says no, they're surrendering. This scene is so pretty because you have all of the leaves and debris on the ground, like, like tree branches getting kicked up by the helicopter blades. And so it's flashing in front of our heroes as they're, you know, as they're talking and the sky is all dark. Like they did these dark clouds over the blue sky. And it just, it's, I don't know what it was about those leaves, but it made it feel more tragic and like I don't know if it's like something where it's signaling autumn or if it's like in the ultimate doom when Cybertron mm -hmm. first came into Earth orbit and like all that stuff was being kicked up in the air. That's exactly what it reminds me of is the ultimate doom. It's like when there's wind and it's like mm -hmm. unexpectedly changed the weather. It's it's so it's like this almost like brings back that same feeling. It's like, hey Gates, remember that other episode where yeah. where it got windy? <laughs> yeah. Remember how you felt during that one? Well, also, I mean, and again, I hope this isn't me like being too much like, you know, art history 101, but like it kind of triggers this idea of chaos. There's a bunch of stuff blowing around all around them and like they're disoriented and they're they're being taken captive by the humans that they're there to protect, you know, and they can't do anything about it because the Autobots are constrained by they're the rule followers. They observe the law. And so when the law comes to them. They can't do anything. They have to go through, you know, due process like anybody else was. That this is the advantage that evil always has over good, right? Is like if, if you have principles, then you got the slow route to justice. 
And if you, you know, if you're a bad guy and you just want power, well, you can try using that force thing. Thankfully, it doesn't always work in the Sunbow universe. Actually, never in the Sunbow universe. But, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, this this scene is like it's it's a really kind of like haunting moment when Ironhide's like, you know, you just give the word Optimus, like the word is surrender. So wow. Well, all the Autobots transform to vehicle mode and they start accompanying Burger's tanks back to the city. Spike, Spark, Plug, and Chip ride in Bumblebee and show their support. Across town, a news reporter asks a hard hat wearing man what he thinks of these surprising events. And he says that those tapes are hard to ignore. Berger, in a TV interview, proposes they rid themselves of these evil Autobots. <laughs> and then we see a sight we haven't seen in quite a while. The Decepticon Tower rising out of the ocean. The OG Decepticon base. <laughs> I can't even remember when we last saw it. It might have been Atlantis Arise? Maybe. But out fly the heroic Decepticons. Well, where are they headed? A giant stadium full of spectators in Central City. The Autobots are present along with Berger. Megatron asks that they forgive the interruption and to proceed with the trial. So this is the trial of the evil Autobots. What a cool idea to have the trial take place in a football stadium. So one, they have room for all of the robots. Mm-hmm. But two, it's like it's like it's emphasizing this idea that the whole world is watching. Right. Imagine, put your just close your eyes and imagine this everybody. You're on trial and there's 150,000 people watching. Mm-hmm. Right? This isn't just a courtroom like in Perry Mason. This is a football stadium. You know, everybody's watching and judging you. It's really selling this whole from here on out it just gets sadder and sadder and sadder and and I and I really remember feeling this as a child like this feels awful for our heroes it makes things even worse that Megatron shows up and speaks politely to the judge and the judge like well of course Megatron <clears throat> and then continues right <laughs> so yeah the trial of the Autobots well, Berger is on the witness stand here saying that he saw the Autobots making energon cubes from the oil field with his own eyes but in the crowd, Spike is suspicious. He suddenly gets the notion that he can get some proof that this whole thing is a farce. He hops out of the stands down to the field where it's all taking place. Megatron gives a nod to Soundwave, who releases Ravage to chase after him. Now, when Ravage transforms and starts to run after Spike, there's like this maybe two-second shot. The moment I saw it, I was like, oh, Hoover has to love this. This needs to be on a t-shirt for Hoover. <laughs> What what are we looking at as Ravage runs towards the camera? Well, we see Megatron, Starscream, Thundercracker, and Soundwave. They're just sort of like, I could only explain it as chilling. Yeah, that's Where right. it's like they're just like leisurely <laughs> leaning up against this barrier wall. And Starscream even has his leg crossed. It looks like an album cover. Yeah. <laughs> It's like it's like Megatron's garage band, and they're all like <laughs> leaning against the wall, and like Reflector took the picture. Now take a couple more because we want to make sure that we get. That. Do I look relaxed? Come on, Thundercracker, you could look more relaxed than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Spike runs from the field to inside the indoor part of the stadium and manages to lose Ravage by trapping him in a revolving door. <laughs> and in an AV room, Spike reviews Burger's famous tape. He finds it very suspect that the Autobots never transformed in the footage. But then as he lets the tape run, we see Prime, Ratchet, and Wheeljack are being played by Starscream, Thundercracker, and Skywarp as they remove their Autobot masks. Oops. I guess the Autobots aren't evil after all. 
Jersey, can you believe this? Yeah, I can. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, not one to let a revolving door stop him, Ravage is caught up with Spike. But we cut away to the field where the verdict is about to be read. Chip tries to stop the trial until Spike returns with the evidence, but they're not having it. The trial is over and the Autobots are guilty. The ruling? The Autobots are banished from Earth forever. What? Now we cut to a launch site where a giant spacecraft awaits. The Autobots and Decepticons are here along with the Mayor and Berger. And it's Berger who provided the spacecraft to remove the Autobots from the planet. Sparkplug wants to know. Can't you do something, Optimus Prime? Negative. Any action we take now would be viewed as admission of our guilt. Board the rocket now! And here's what's really nutty. There's not many Autobots present. <laughs> this is supposed to be all of them. But it's just not enough. In some scenes, they're drawn so small and close together that it's hard to tell who's missing exactly. But there's definitely some we don't see. Like, there's even, like, by season one standards, there's not enough Autobots to be all the Autobots here. <laughs> yeah. But with Megatron here are Starscream, Thundercracker, Skywarp, Dirge, and Ramjet. They point their weapons at the Autobots as they walk up the ramp to board the rocket. Chip asks them where they'll go, and Prime isn't even sure. Somewhere, Chip. Maybe even Cybertron. Wherever we go, we'll miss you. You and Spike and Sparkplug have been true friends. Where is Spike? He's still searching for evidence. I guess it's too late for that now. Oh, this scene just pummeled me as a child. Like, when you hear him say, you know, it's like, ah, you know, Optimus is going to miss his human friends. And then as he's saying it, there's like this slow pan back or a truck back, I guess is the technical term for it, where we're watching Chip look up at the Autobots as they're going away. And then we see Sparkplug walking towards Chip to take the wheelchair and he's looking up at them as they're going away. And it feels just so lonely for like the, the, the only humans who actually believe in them. And, and the whole planet, the whole planet is turned against the Autobots. And these are the only ones who believe in them. And they're watching their friends go away. And they know, they know what danger is being left behind with them. Right? So, man, what, what a, a beautiful scene. Now, do, do you have any problem with the fact that Optimus is, is like totally just rolling over on this? It's a bit much. I mean, there's one thing to not, you know, fight back when tanks show up at your door, but it's a whole other thing mm -hmm. to just go, okay, I guess we'll leave. Yeah. It's like, it's the wrong Peter Cullen character. It's Eeyore. It's not Optimus Prime. Hello, my name is Eeyore. Thanks for noticing me. <laughs> well, it, I, I thought about this as I was watching it, because I'm like, okay, well... Now, Prime, this is the point where you're you're actually abdicating your responsibility. Like, you have to protect these people. You know that Megatron's lying. And, like, there's another part of you who's like, well, you know, there's the appeals process, Optimus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, are you really, you're not going to take this to a higher court? You're going to let a mayor decide whether or not you're exiled from Earth? But that's, that's a, a different point altogether because, like, that's, we don't need to get into that kind of technical weeds that, because this is a children's show, right? It's really about how heroes are con constrained by the rules. And that's one of their weaknesses. It's not just like personal flaws. It's also the fact that there's a system. And if you obey that system, then eh, you're going to have some, some limitations of your power, 
rightfully so, right? Otherwise, he could become a monster. If the hero it never stops being a hero and like you know operates above the law, they're no longer a hero. So I feel like the poetry is kind of taking full effect here. Like I mean, poetry in the sense that it's not literal; it's not meant to be very realistic. Now we're talking about ideas and concepts through this fantasy story. And yeah, as our as our human friends look up, they actually Optimus stops at the door and he looks down at them, and then the door closes, right? Yeah. All the Autobots are on the shuttle now, and Berger wonders if the election were held today, if that might have changed the outcome. But the mayor tells him his quest for power will destroy him, and Berger smirks and disagrees. The shuttle's rockets fire up and it flies into space, and we see its reflection in Chip's glasses, and then we see a tear roll down his face. So I'm sure Jersey wants to say something here. I can't. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. And it's it's melodramatic. It's definitely melodramatic, right? Because, like, like, when the rocket flies away, like, Chip's face is, like, even, like, kind of, like, washed out by the, the, the light. And then as the light fades, we see his eyes again. That's when the tear goes down. Again, this, this is that, that catnip or heroin that I get hooked on about this <laughs> show. It's about, it's about the friendships. Also, I don't know if we mentioned that, that Berger donated the rocket. Mm-hmm. Berger is so wealthy that he gave them a starship. <laughs> NASA can't get to Mars, but Berg send Autobots back to Cybertron, and he's running for mayor. <laughs> Seems like he got enough power to do a lot of amazing things, Mr. Berger, but yeah, just Central City must be really alluring to you. I don't know what it is. Oh, I guess that's where the Flash lives after all. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, feeling a lot of big feelings and a lot of sadness in this scene and and just feeling so so heartbroken for our heroes who are limited by by the limitations of the fact that they're good guys. I think it's worth hanging on this moment just for two more seconds to think about how, like, we experienced this when we're kids, right? Like, you're in the classroom, you're taking a test, another kid wants to cheat, you know? And you're like, oh, you can't cheat, that's wrong. Well, we understand that as a rule and, like, some of us obeyed the rules, some, some of us didn't. And I think it was kind of cool and interesting as a child to experience a story where sometimes the heroes don't win. Sometimes everybody hates you because you're doing the right thing. Sometimes they're going to throw food at you because you did the right thing. You know, that's pretty darn awesome to actually put this in a story. So again, Mr. Glute, I bow, you know, well done. <laughs> well, we cut to the arc at night where the Decepticons are claiming squatters rights. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> well, Berger is with them, wanting to know why they're here. And when will he get his reward? He was promised three cities. Three? <laughs> Megatron says first comes his own reward. And firing up Teletran 1, Megatron somehow uses his fusion cannon as a light pen. <laughs> he actually turns the barrel and you see a lens start to emerge at the front of the fusion cannon. <laughs> it's really weird. And somehow he changes the destination of the ship that the Autobots are on from Cybertron to the sun. capability and retargeted them to the sun. <laughs> they will become one with oblivion. 
And as he's saying this, we look at this shot of Berger's cool triangle starship, by the way. It was, it's actually a neat design for a ship. And we're seeing it from behind as it's heading off in the distance. And they did that thing where they shifted the focus so that we see the sun like it's all like burning with energy. But it's like it's just out of focus and fuzzy, which they don't do a lot in the show. But when they do it, it's really, really effective. and looks really pretty. So what a moment to end on. And, and also during Megatron's speech, there's a nice pan across the inside of the ship. And it's just Optimus sitting in a chair at a control panel. And everybody else is like sitting in like passenger plane seats all in rows. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty cute. But once again, it's like there's a lot of Autobots missing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so in the last two-parter, we got a whole spiel from Victor Caroli telling us what to expect in part two. But in this one, we just get him saying, To be continued on tomorrow's The Transformers. <laughs> oh, well. Well, even a little Victor Caroli is better than none. I feel like he can't. Like, th- this was probably intentional. It's like, we can't show the Autobots doing anything tomorrow. That's true. Yeah. Because otherwise, like, well, I guess they, they totally didn't go into the sun. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to be continued. Uh, first five seconds of the episode. Ah, we're all burning. And now Megatron wins. <laughs> they, yeah, they maybe didn't want to give kids that last image. Right. For the last image of the episode. Next episode. All the Autobots burn to death. <laughs> oh, it hurts so much. Oh, no. Yeah, I don't think... You know, I mean, when we get to Transformers the movie, we could talk about what happened to some kids who walked into that movie not knowing. You know, I, I don't think that they would have gotten away with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is where we end on, huh? Yeah, that's it. That's the end of part one. So how do you feel overall? Well. Obviously, it was a bit of a heart wrencher for you. Well, yeah, yeah, because it's. Well, it's doing what these episodes, these these multi-parters are supposed to do, where Megatron has to win by like a substantial margin at the cliffhanger, right? Mm-hmm. Dinobot Island did that. Ultimate Doom did that. So it makes the turnaround that much more wonderful for me. But I really, there's like a lot of things I really love in this. One is, is that we have a character, a new villain, who is clearly unprincipled, unscrupulous, and just downright wicked, but he's got... He's got a public-facing narrative Mm. so that he can operate in society, right? And at first, it sounds like he buys his own narrative, right? He's like, well, why should I believe you, Megatron? If he was true to himself, if he really was honest with himself, he would have engaged in the deal whether or not Megatron was a villain. So I think Berger is actually a pretty interesting new bad guy to show that you could be manipulated into doing truly heinous things if you think you're on the, the side of the angels, Right. Mm. And, but then we have the mayor even say, like, your quest for power is going to destroy you. And he's like, well, it doesn't look like that from where I'm standing. And this is another thing that's important for kids to see is that sometimes it's one thing to say in the end of a He-Man episode, cheaters never win. And it's like, well, that's that's nice. That's a very lovely thought. But I'm at school and I'm seeing kids cheat left and right and they're getting away with it, you know. But they're setting it up so that we're going to see what happens to Burger next time. They've set it up so that They've implied a downward spiral for him, but right now he's on top, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just that he's going to get caught by the cops. Like, there's a much worse fate for a character like this who has you know, sort of bought his own lies. So that is interesting to me. And then the other element that I think is super interesting about this two-parter is, is it's really emphasizing, much in the way Heavy Metal War did, is that if you have principles and if you have dignity and honor and loyalty and you you know play by the rules 
there are going to be times where you are at a tremendous disadvantage, so much so that you might actually lose. And what's more important in that situation, right? Mm. I know I connected with that story as a child, like with that question. And pretty, I, I internalized it pretty deeply. So that's another, here's, here, I, what we're also doing in this project is we're amassing a list of writers that I need to write letters to. <laughs> <laughs> to thank them, you know, like, like, yeah, you know what? I, I was kind of lost as a little kid. And then like you wrote this story that like really hit me right between the eyes. I puzzled over it for years and years and years. And now I feel like I have like kind of like a pretty awesome barometer to help me help guide me through problem solving. But anyway, so yeah, like it's one that I would have pointed to to say like, this is a classic Gen 1 Transformers episode. If you've never watched the show, watch this one. It's good. But it also is one that kind of like checks the boxes for me about like really being about something and in a way where they're not hitting it over the head. They're not presenting it to the to, to like make the parents see that the child is learning something. They're trusting that the child is paying attention. And I feel like that's another recipe ingredient for the platonic ideal of Transformers episodes for me is like really putting something that's useful and positive for children but not doing it in a way where the, the child feels that they're being instructed. Mm. They're being entertained first, but yeah. there's also positive stuff in there. Yeah, agreed. I really like the structure of this episode as well. Like the act breaks are at great moments. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we get these act breaks and you're like, mm, this is really the spot you decided we needed commercials at? Okay. <laughs> it's but, you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, but but these were just perfectly timed, and it's yeah. it's a good reveal that we find out in part one that it's all a ruse, and we see Spike get the evidence, but we still don't know what happened to Spike, so that's sort of a mini cliffhanger we're still mm-hmm. stuck with. Yeah. I mean, if they hadn't revealed quite obviously that the Decepticons were masquerading as the Autobots here until part two, I think that would have been some points off. But they revealed it at just the right time. It's yeah, like you're right. It wasn't soon enough to be able to interfere with the Autobots being sent into space. Yeah. But it was soon enough in the story to where it telegraphs to the viewers that, hey, this is all Megatron's doing and he's winning. Yep. That, yes, you're right. That is a perfectly timed reveal because like, if, if it wasn't revealed at all and you're seeing them going towards the sun, it's like, well, I guess they're going to die. But after all, I mean... <laughs> yeah, but they're they evil. Were, they're evil, so I guess, you know, a little harsh, but <laughs> <laughs> they kind of asked for it. They were tricking us for like 33, 34 episodes, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Because like now it makes that moment that much more tragic because like they're going to die and it's not their fault, you know? It's, it's not fair. And that's another thing that kids really respond to, right? Is like, it's not fair. Everything has to be distributed equally. They got a bigger thing than I did. They got more ice cream than I did, you know? They got out <laughs> of school earlier than I did. It's not fair. So that's also really well designed. Yep. Rock yeah, solid. All in all, it's a solid episode. I mean, I'm not totally in love with it. I think actually part two is more of my favorite and we'll see why mm-hmm. a lot next episode. But uh, I'll say two words, everybody. Reject parts. We're going to talk about that next week. Because <laughs> that has gotten mileage. Out, Hoover's gotten mileage out of that for well about 25 years. <laughs> well, you know why that is. And yeah. just as a little tip off is that Thrust has the line next episode, reject parts. <laughs> and the reason that was so memorable to me is because when I first got on the Internet in the great dark ages of 1994, <laughs> um, there was that early Transformers website. 
that had uh, like a quote from the cartoon of every character that was on the cartoon. And the one for Thrust was reject parts. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a very memorable line for that time. Because at the time, I didn't have the whole series on video. I didn't have it on oh, DVD. Oh, that's right. It didn't exist on DVD yet. So that's right. It's like these wave files were like the only thing I had to hang on to for for my memories of the Transformers cartoon, other than the very small collection of episodes that I still had on VHS. That's true. Yeah. Another thing that's like worth contextualizing is that like it was comparatively rare for television series to be collected on VHS tape at that time. You wouldn't yeah. have like, you know, the entire run of Cheers on VHS right. unless you taped it yourself. And and certainly kids cartoons from our childhoods were not going to be collected anytime soon because everybody else moved on, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, someplace in my basement is a box of letters from you from our first correspondence. We were like <laughs> li- literally pen pals. We wrote on paper and put them in the mail and sent them to one another. And I know there was a paragraph in there about that line. We were trying to like puzzle out like, what was that all about? Why is he screaming reject parts and laughing? Because <laughs> <laughs> it had been so long since, it has been all of 10 years since we've seen that episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm looking forward to next week. Yeah, this is this was a this is an emotionally difficult episode to get through, but it's it's full of some really rich storytelling that these Sunbow folks just knew how to do so well. So, definitely one if you're going to watch the five episodes of the Transformers, I'd say this is one of them. Yeah, I would say this is a good two-parter to to actually sit down and watch. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Hoover, for this discussion. And thanks to everybody who downloads and listens to this podcast. If you enjoy this, if you if you want to be a true friend to us the way Chip and Spike are true friends to the Autobots and really <laughs> stand by us when the rest of the world turns on us, go write a five-star review or give a five-star review wherever you listen to the show and write a review if you really, really love us and say, like, hey, here's three things that makes this show so great. Here's uh, three names that Hoover could have used for episode titles mm. uh, in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but he he didn't <laughs> and if you think hoover deserves five cities for all the work that he does in this <laughs> podcast make sure to say that too he does deserve five cities for all the work he does in this podcast and they would they would all be fortress maximus and metroplex they wouldn't be <laughs> Triptychon or scorponok oh. <laughs> well those are the ones i would want all right, and you can check out this podcast every week at 4millionyearslater.com, and there's the Facebook page, and there's the email address that you hear about in just a second. Until next time, I have been Jersey Drozd of 4millionyearslater.com and Jersey Drozd on Instagram. And I have been Hoover. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. Closing theme is by Nick Mahalik, based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dash M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K. Find us on Facebook under 4 Million Years Later, and you can email us at 4millionyearslater at gmail.com. Visit 4millionyearslater.com, and if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You know how it works. Bye!